Bob was shooting the high school dance sequence. At that time, Bob was doing five things at once, and I walked in, I had seen a rough cut, and I walked up to Bob and I said, Bob, I see we can go two ways. We can go this way, in contemporary, we can go big score. And he turns around and he goes, Al! Big, big. I kept telling Al that all I wanted was the score to be big. That was Robert Zemeckis, and this is Underscore, a podcast of music and story. Welcome back to Underscore, the show that celebrates the rich tradition of movie music, one film at a time. I'm Marty Brueggemann, and with me as always is my brother Will. Back again in the same room. I think this, this is, is actually, exciting. Yeah, this is this. only maybe the third or fourth time in the history of this show that we've been recording in the same location. Which must mean that it's a very special occasion. Uh, special indeed. We're now moving on to our third film subject for the show. Can you believe that we're already on to film number three? The time is just flying by. Speaking of time, Will, <laughs> why don't you tell our listeners what our third fantastic film is? Well, we just can't wait to discuss the score to not only one of our favorite pieces of film music, but one of our favorite movies ever, Back to the Future. Composed by the wonderful Alan Silvestri. And it's fair to say the far too unsung Alan Silvestri. This gentleman should be a household name. Not only did he compose the score to Back to the Future and all of the films in the Back to the Future trilogy, But he has had a long-running relationship with that film's director, Robert Zemeckis. The two of them also worked on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump, Castaway. The list goes on and on. It really does. Many notable and cultural touchstones in this medium and I mean just in general I you know I feel a similar way about Robert Zemeckis that I do about Alan Silvestri even though he's celebrated amongst other directors and people that love cinema he's not the household name that say Steven Spielberg is Scorsese or Coppola or something he really ought to be because he's contributed to so many incredible pioneering films and the same could be said about Alan Silvestri's music I mean he's just really one of the all-time great film composers in my estimation the other thing that we love about this score it's one of those great sort of behind the scenes stories personally one of my favorite sort of moments that can happen for a composer is when there's a gig that's maybe beyond anything you've done before previously and it's very high profile but there's a real opportunity for something really significant And those instances when a composer can step up to that challenge, gosh, that's something that just always excites me. And I really think of Alan Silvestri's score in Back to the Future when I think of opportunity knocking. Right. And And knocking it out of the park. (laughs) Right. And taking the call. Really, Silvestri hadn't done much in the way of large-scale orchestral scores no, to this point. He had had a little bit of experience in a previous film, Fandango, which I think was really his first score that used a lot of orchestra, and he has spoken before about how that score helped to give him maybe just enough preparation for what was ultimately called for here in Back to the Future. But it's funny when you look at the previous collaboration between Silvestri and Zemeckis, Romancing the Stone, a completely different score 
score, more of a pop score, a jazz right. score. Um, and, and it's really effective, but very much of its time. And I heard Robert Zemeckis saying something that I think is kind of interesting. He said, in that film, we were able to visually capture the bigness that I wanted and see sure. these incredible vistas. Uh, but with Back to the Future, the music really needed to communicate that. And I think what's so amazing is the power of music really can't be understated because I think if you ask the average person nowadays, back to the old uh, street test that we were going to conduct with John Williams, not <laughs> right. only is this Back to the Future theme more recognizable, but it's a big part of what made that film such a staple of pop culture of the 1980s. And I really think it's still with us today. And I think it's pretty invisible, the role of the score in the power and magic of this film. I think Back to the Future sits very comfortably on the shelf next to something like Star Wars, right. Raiders of the Lost Ark. But really, if you pull the score out of the film, it's a very small-scale story. And visually, we're not seeing giant star fields and planets and right. tons of explosions. It's a story mostly about people and really, at its heart, a comedy. And it's Alan's score that takes it to high 80s adventure. Absolutely. I mean, as you can probably tell, uh, we can't wait to discuss this film over the next few weeks, and it's going to be an absolute pleasure for us. We hope for you as well. Today, we're going to be focusing primarily on the central theme to this picture, Alan Silvestri's orchestral masterpiece, the Back to the Future main theme. <laughs> some of us, this is the theme to our childhood, but really Back to the Future seems to be one of those rare, timeless, pun intended, absolutely, uh, films that really seems to work for almost any generation. Uh, I've seen this film several times in the last few years in, say, a movies in the park setting or with friends at a party. And it's amazing how it seems to work for any age, for new viewers, for those of us that have seen it plenty of times. And this theme is just indelible, unforgettable, and it's just so exciting. You want to be a part of this theme. You want to be Marty. For me personally, it was really watching <laughs> this film that made me not want to be Martin, but Marty. And I actually modeled my signature after the way Marty writes his signature when he writes a letter to Doc. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Well, I, I think all of you are going to really delight these next few weeks in the confusion between me talking about Marty McFly or Marty Brueggemann, my brother. And also between gigawatts and gigabytes. <laughs> and yeah, from now on, we're going to refer to the space on the disc as gigabytes. Gigabyte. But back to this theme. Such an incredible composition. Just an amazing melody that is, to me, highlighted by 
a very striking series of opening pitches. Bum, bum, bum. This piece, as we talked about many great examples last week, is a prize example of the use of the Lydian mode. This melody is really featuring that prominent alteration of that modal scale, which would be that raised or augmented fourth. That Woodian fourth, as we mentioned last week. Really, it was our anticipation in focusing on Back to the Future that led us to last week's Lydian episode. It wouldn't really be possible for us to explore this score thoroughly without really talking about Lydian. What's fantastic here is it's not just a significant interval or a significant pitch for the opening of this main theme, although it's certainly memorable and it sticks with you. And it has all those characteristics like we described last week, the sort of magical, the otherworldly. But really that Lydian fourth inspires most of the material of the entire score, this yeah. opening phrase that we Especially its relationship to the tonic, which we talked about last time as being a tritone interval. We could say the use of tritones in this score almost becomes some sort of motivic idea. I think that's true, really, whether it's in uh, action music and we have this sort of a tritone motif in the bass or in an ostinato based on the tritone, or whether it's our wonderful, magical chime signal of the time travel. Will and I are still trying to find the best words to describe one of our favorite musical devices in this score. We're talking about... And what we hear there are a series of triads that are related tritonically. Is that, right. is that a phrase? <laughs> We've talked about that same type of movement. Actually, in the Vertigo score, there was one moment where Bernard Herrmann voices things. I believe in that case, it was C major and F sharp major. In this case, that particular motive does a wonderful little dance of going from E major to B flat major, which is that tritone movement, but then jumping from G major down to D flat major. So it's this sequence of two subsequent tritone moves in this quick arpeggiated moment with the celeste. We mentioned before how the Lydian mode may be considered movie magic, but out of any singular arpeggiated motive in the entire history of film, to me, this is I think something that most captures movie magic to me. And it's so immediate. I don't know if every listener would automatically be able to match that moment with Back to the Future, but I think they would match it with movie magic. Right. Well, I'd be surprised. I I think a lot of people would hear that and be like, oh, where's the DeLorean? Right. Uh, but we digress. I mean, there's so, you, as you can tell, there's so much excellent material to discuss in this score. But we really want to focus today just primarily on this theme. We talked about the first three notes of the melody, which in any iconic film theme that's meant to grab your attention right away, the importance of those first two or three notes really can't be overstated. To me, Alan Silvestri's iconic melody here stacks up among the ranks of the greatest movie themes of all time. One of the things that I'm so enamored by is like the theme to Superman, there's almost two themes. You so could true. you could think of it as like a verse and a chorus or A section and B section, but the way they're presented here is they both almost seem like the definitive statement of the hero's theme. Right. Uh, you know, if somebody says sing the main theme to Back to the Future, you really don't know. Maybe they'll sing bum bum bum, but they might also sing bum 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 bum. And they would both be right. Yeah, like Will said, that 
opening melodic shape is so effective. What's really interesting, if we take a moment to look at the sort of rhythmic structure of the A section, to me, it reminds me of no other piece of music in the film score canon that I can think of. And looking at it more closely, it is so perfectly suited to the concept of this film. Really, there's this temporal shift right. with the rhythm. It opens with these half notes, Da, da, da. And then the rhythm increases subtly to these quarter note triplets. And then the rhythm speeds up again. It's and, and it's almost like our DeLorean is pedaling up faster and it's faster. It's reaching to 88, reach miles, 88 an miles an hour. <laughs> at which point we can travel through time. And really, after that temporal shift, the melody sort of finds its footing at a rhythmic value that we haven't heard yet, which is actually the quarter note value. So we go from half sure. note, quarter note triplet, 16th notes into quarter notes. So ba, 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 but a quarter note and uh... Right, I think, yeah, it's such a lovely moment. It is interesting for how pure in primary we would describe this theme how in the first few bars, it's just a tapestry of different rhythms. Right. You know, Mostly half notes, highlighting that triplets, opening pitch phrase. Very different from something like the Raiders theme where we described as it taking a very basic dotted rhythmic motif in transposing it through sequence. Right. Uh, this is an example of, I would describe both of those themes as almost equal in terms of memorability, but... It, there really isn't a pattern. There's not a template for writing a great melody. And you can describe and analyze something as being so perfect for all of its features and that it couldn't be any different. But then you can look at another theme that's also fantastic for a completely different set of reasons. And really, I think that holds true in the different sections of this piece. Like you said, Will, it's almost like we have two main themes. That B section is just as striking, that opening gambit. ba 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 and notice it's combining all of the different rhythms that happened in the A section as our DeLorean was sort of ramping up speed. Well, the other great thing about how this piece develops is its use of modulation. Uh, we have two statements of that A theme before we get the chorus or the B theme statement, the kind of triumphant overcoming of danger, I, I think of it as. But they're not in the same key region. And this piece right. very quickly sets up the idea that these themes and motives will be modulating swiftly from key to key to key. In fact, we just Describe that opening moment as being in Lydian, but we really don't stay within the confines of the Lydian mode past the first two measures. We're swiftly recontextualizing that Lydian passage as being almost the fourth and fifth scale degree of a major key, and then having a half cadence going to the five chord in that major key. But then we're not <laughs> done. We're modulating up a fourth, and now right. we're in G flat major, and we're experiencing that theme again. And then another modulation occurs occurs because it sounds like we're having a half cadence in the key of F. But then when that chorus idea happens, there's an E flat minor seventh chord, which right. what relation does that have <laughs> to F major or to B flat Lydian? You know, we're, it's this free sense of modulation. And I don't want to communicate that this is in any way random because Every single one of these modulations is precise and is impactful on an emotional level. And you really can analyze its specific effect. But right. we just wanted to illustrate that 
on one hand, Alan Silvestri has a really rich and elaborate sense of harmonic understanding in that the idea of modulating is a huge component of this score, whether it's just the first three notes of the theme or right. listening to this definitive presentation overall. It's not comfortable maintaining in one singular home key. There's been a tradition for many years in film music, in the actual scores, the pieces of music that are on the stands of the musicians, that we don't use key signatures. This can sometimes throw more traditional music students. Most of us are used to reading key signatures all the time. They indicate what the tonal center of a particular piece or movement is. And on a more basic level, what notes you can play with the least amount of chromatic accidentals. Right. But I think what we have here in Back to the Future is a wonderful illustration of the kind of rich modulation that can happen right. in film music that warrants using fixed key signatures somewhat impractical. Something that I so love about Alan Silvestri's writing, and part of it has to do with his use of modulation, but I think it's more overall has to do with just his chord vocabulary in general. You know, when we listen to, say, the score to Romancing the Stone, it's very clear that Alan Silvestri has a background in jazz and popular music right. in terms of his he understanding. He has a very strong foundation in jazz. And yeah. in a way similar to how John Williams had a jazz music background, and we mentioned how that influenced his overall approach to harmony. Right. But we could say with Alan Silvestri, in addition to the world of jazz, you also have the kind of popular 1960s musical revolution of the Beatles. You know, some of those same harmonic cadences, particularly the way that the first phrase of the B section concludes, the bum, ba -da -dum, bum, 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 you have what I call like the Beatles chord progression, right. where you it sounds like you're setting up a flat six, flat seven, one, but then that what we're perceiving as a flat seven ends you up functioning sort of as, plagal yeah, as the four yeah. chord in another tonic. Uh, you could think of like polythene Pam or the end. Uh, it happens all over the place in 1960s guitar music. And I think it's something that just came to intuitively from that understanding of guitar-based harmony. And like Williams, Silvestri has really assimilated all these forms of harmonic expression. And when he's employing them here in the score, you never really get a sense that it's sort of rock and roll set to strings. Yeah, not at all. That's it's just thing. It's just part of the rich tapestry of uh, the film music vocabulary. Well, and when you hear Alan Silvestri or the directors or the producers talking about this music, they describe it as old-fashioned. Like, oh, we want an old-fashioned film theme. And I'm always just shaking my head. It's like, I guess presentationally, it's a rousing fanfare with the orchestra. But this harmony is so distinct to its era. To me, right. Alan Silvestri's score is as rooted in 1985 as all of the popular music in the film. It just also has this element of being timeless in its presentation. Uh, if you remember our episode last week when we were sort of charting the life of Woodian throughout <laughs> film scores, this period of time was kind of a high watermark. It was post-Superman, uh, post Empire Strikes Back, Yoda's theme, and there was so much Lydian in the water of film music. And you can really feel it here. 
it's not an imitative score. It's just vital, but right. it's also culturally relevant. It speaks to the time in which it was created. Well, and what I love is to me, Alan Silvestri is taking his harmonic vocabulary that he's accumulated from jazz, classical, pop music, rock music, and it's all coalesced into his own identity. And then it's through that identity trying to create an adventure score in the style of Korn Gold or even John Williams. And what's so wonderful about that, it does create something truly new. If you love the sound of Back to the Future, there isn't any other existing or pre-existing piece of it's classical so or film music that will satisfy those exact same urges. And it's not just the contour of the melody and it's not just the harmonies. It's everything. It's the orchestration. Right. It's the complete package. You talked before about the way that some of these ideas are accompanied rhythmically is not traditional well that's just as true to the orchestra accompaniment as it is to the melody some people may think of this piece as being in a march tradition quote unquote because it has that sound of almost a great john williams march in terms of its melodic presentation but in terms of how it's scored there's less of an emphasis in the definitive presentation of this rhythmic pulse. It's more about subverting that, you know, with boom, bum, brum, bum, bum, bum. And there's all these syncopated, accented, uh, there's all these syncopated, accented tones that happen, particularly in the low brass. Bah, bah. It right, is right kind of williams And of ones, and of threes. And yeah, a lot of those syncopated offbeats, I think some people could interpret as being classical. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Tchaikovsky, actually, will do sure. that some in some of the, the climaxes of his melodic phrases will have these. But even bum, in Tchaikovsky, bum, bum, it bum. will usually be a little bit more of a binary rhythm. Yeah, totally. Here with Silvestri, like John Williams, and we talked a little bit before with John Williams, that there's almost an influence maybe from his father, that sort of jazz comping, jazz drumming <laughs> kind of rhythmic right. instinct. Really, that's alive and well here in Alan Silvestri. And to really think that this is coming from a composer that didn't have a decade of large orchestral scores right. behind him. It's just remarkable. He must have learned a lot at Berkeley, or he must just be a very intuitive musician because I find his orchestration downright masterful. Marty and I are actually fortunate to have a copy of the now discontinued. Yeah, it is out of print, sadly, but Omni Music Publishing, which is a fairly small publishing operation that's really dedicated to selling full orchestral scores. And I think we may have mentioned in the past, it's pretty rare to find commercially available score material. We're talking about the sheet music. Well, And for a a period of time, uh, Back to the Future, the entire film score was available in one of these releases. Unfortunately, no longer. It did quickly sell out. And as of right now, it does not seem like there are plans for another run of that score. But we are on the uh, email notification mailing list. And if there is an update, we will let you know. We'll tweet about it. It is so choice. If you have the means, I, I highly recommend picking one up. And it's it's been incredibly illuminating for us to be able to, in a very clear way, visualize this entire score. And just right. I marvel at Silvestri's orchestration. One of my favorite things melodically about this theme, in a way that is married to the concept of orchestration, is there's a bit of polyphony towards the end of the B section 
that is essential to your understanding of the melody. Not in a way that, you know, a lot of times when we think about orchestral film music is you have a very principal primary theme um, with this heterophonic texture. So right. there are things underneath that have more of an interesting rhythmic subdivision and there's counter melodies and things. But if we look at the way that this B section concludes... have two melodies going on at once in neither one of them is the definitive idea you know if we were to just listen to that top voice it really feels like something is missing if we were to play the melody with that you might say something is wrong that is that really what the melody is yet if we were just to play the counter melody underneath that you would definitely feel like something is missing you would definitely feel like something is missing. It really is this true moment. There are moment. two halves that really complete yeah, each other. This true polyphonic moment, and something that is brilliant about the way Silvestri orchestrates this, is he flips it. Uh, the right. first time we hear that B section, we hear the what we're calling the top line supported with the low strings and horns. Right. And that kind of implies that it is the principal melody, yet we have the high violins and the high strings doing that response. So there isn't this clear dichotomy of what's on top and what's on bottom, because what we're thinking is the primary statement is actually underneath what we're almost hearing is the counter melody. Right. And then at the recapitulation of that moment, like Will said, he flips it. So right. the horns and the lower strings are playing the other phrase and the violins are playing the other part. It's really amazing. And I think a nice illustration of his eye and ear for orchestrational detail. You know, Leonard Bernstein in his series of incredible lectures on the nature of tonal harmony and music in the development of music, uh, really puts an emphasis on the nature of ambiguity and the importance of ambiguity in music and how we understand music. And right. to me, this is an example of a beautiful ambiguity because Silvestri isn't allowing our ears to gravitate towards one melody over the other. They are both of equal importance. And by flipping their orchestration, he's reinforcing that, no, I'm challenging you to listen to two things at once here. What I think is so brilliant about that, uh, polyphonic music has a rich tradition in Western classical music. We think of the Baroque era and the Renaissance period being characterized by really these multiple melodies occurring and functioning with each other. But it's not a huge part of tunes. You know, when we think about a catchy song or a catchy tune, and far too often film music, I think, is derided or looked down upon for having these accessible melodies. Well, sure. I would say Back to the Future, its theme is incredibly accessible and incredibly effective and it has this rich polyphonic complexity to the way it concludes itself by no means could this be described as simple in a derogatory sense not at all what also fascinates me about that final section this polyphonic moment is it also does the similar sort of narrative or thematic painting that the earlier sections did you almost have the sense of timelines converging or passing each other right uh, towards the end of the film Marty and Doc have to sort of have a sense of each timeline and right. how they relate to each other. And one of the goals of the film is trying to preserve the timeline that Marty came from, that Marty yeah. 
was born in. When we think about also the climax of the film, we keep cutting back and forth between, you know, Marty at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance and Doc in his antics on the clock tower trying to get all the cables set up. That theme is almost representative of our two protagonists, Marty and Doc, and how they work in different ways. But when they come together, it's this perfect pair and you wouldn't want it any other way. That's heavy. (laughs) Now, I think whenever we get into the realm of the musicological, sometimes it can feel like we're on somewhat shaky ground. Oh, did the composer really intend that that harmonic device matches that sort of narrative theme? And a lot of that is difficult to say. Sometimes those sort of things happen on a subconscious level. And sometimes they are intentional. But I do think there's a really strong case to be made for the music uniquely matching the character and the theme of this film. But like the writing, the acting, the filmmaking of Back to the Future, it is very tasteful. And it's not employing sort of flavor of the week solutions for some of that expression. And we've talked about how timeless Back to the Future works as a film. I really think... Alan Silvestri, as well as Zemeckis and Gale and everyone involved, all it's all of their collective taste that really, I think, contributes to sort of movie magic here. Completely. One of the things I am so enamored with in this score to Back to the Future is that unlike Raiders and Vertigo, this main theme is pretty much the dominant idea throughout most of the score. Right. We don't have an abundance of character themes that come in and out and need to be interwoven together. And the other ideas that we do have really emanate from this main theme. Right. It seems that some of these motives are born from this theme rather than like themes being born from the motives, which is almost what Vertigo was. The Vertigo score seems like you could imagine Bernard Herrmann started with a sequence of notes or a few small little nuggets and crafted themes out of them. But I think with this score, Alan Silvestri must have started with this incredible theme music and created the score by almost deconstructing his theme and uh, fittingly enough to talk about time again, almost contorting it so that the way we hear things is out of time and in a presentation that may not feel completely comfortable in each instance. Like Will said, there's a lot about the score to Back to the Future that is unlike our previous two film subjects. And it's not only its strong focus on its central theme, but also in where the score takes place in this film. I'd be curious to almost have some sort of informal poll with fans of the film and ask the question, how many minutes of the film take place before our first cue of Alan Silvestri's score? (laughs) And the answer is actually... 18 and a half minutes. Which is highly unusual for a blockbuster 80s orchestral adventure score. Totally. And in addition, one of the huge components to this film are the popular songs, Huey Lewis in the News, and uh, even those great... All of the cl- great oldies. Yeah, exactly. All, all that incredible music when he goes back to 1955. That's such a huge character 
in Back to the Future that we can't not discuss all of that stuff in the way Alan's music seeks in and out and seems to sit alongside that stuff yet creates this dichotomy between music that's meant to set the tone of the period and music that's meant to communicate the emotional adventure. What's so great about Silvestri's music is he's communicating the aspects about this movie that make it that classic summer blockbuster. Because you described that it's really a rather small film. And I think so much of what's happening in the visuals and the dialogue and the relationships between characters it's a high school movie. It's this clever, almost satire about growing up and him dealing with his family. And it's showing the differences between, you know, how things have changed from the 50s until now. The music is really the soul of the movie. And it's the one thing that communicates forward drive, pulse, and the idea that this is an adventure story. And really a fantasy adventure story. It's Alan's music that takes us to the height of fantasy or movie magic. Now, it seems surprising that that much of the opening of the film plays without score. Well, it wouldn't be entirely true to say that it plays unscored. Instead, in a few scenes, it's scored by popular music. Right. And this is another feature of Back to the Future that's got both Will and I so excited to explore it here on Underscore. It'll be another first for this show because next week we're going to be focusing exclusively on the popular songs in this movie. And we're going to be pulling no punches. Uh, I think one of the things that you could say both Marty and I are very passionate about is that all music has, sorry, is that music, regardless of genre, has value. And I think it would be completely unfair to discuss Back to the Future and only give serious thought to Alan Silvestri's incredible music because the Huey Lewis and the News songs are as important to establishing the tone of this piece as anything else. So next week, we're going to be focusing exclusively on those songs and we're going to be talking about them from the same music theory perspectives and storytelling perspectives that we discuss all of film music. And I cannot wait to get back in time with the power of no, no, The power okay. of love, it is a curious thing. <laughs> I've so enjoyed just gushing over Sylvester's theme to Back to the Future. I, I really think we could do 50 episodes on it. I will never grow tired of it, and I'm endlessly inspired by it. And I really mean what I said earlier, that if you adore this theme as we do, there's no substitute. You know, you could say that the opening Lydian moment, oh, maybe it sounds a little bit like Yoda's theme. But the overall power of love, no, <laughs> of this theme is completely unique. I mean, there's nothing else even in Alan Silvestri's body of work that captures what this does. I mean, I think some of the best film themes are that way. Right. We were saying that a little bit with the Raiders March, that it's like, yes, John Williams has written an abundance of music in, in American March style, but nothing like the Raiders March. It's right. truly singular. And Back to the Future, to me, it's up on that pedestal, man. It just doesn't get any better. It's like having your favorite dish at a restaurant, and maybe the chef has an interesting twist on a pad thai or something. And then one of your friends foolishly tries to suggest a different pad thai from a different restaurant. <laughs> it is just not. How dare you? It is just not. There's the only same one thing. pad thai. There's only one pad thai. And there's only one Alan Silvestri. Mm -hmm.
we hope you've enjoyed this discussion and exploration on the main theme of Back to the Future as much as Will and I have. As always, please feel free to pass along any questions or thoughts via email to the underscore show at gmail.com. And you can also find every episode of this show as well as supplementary material for this episode and films that we've discussed prior at our website and blog, underscorepodcast.com. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. That helps new viewers discover the podcast. You can also like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and as always, you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at underscore underscore show. The second underscore is silent. That's all for this week, everybody. Until next time. And as always, we listen because we love. Take care. Underscore is part of the Marcado Brothers Podcast Network.